Jason Kane. This is Night Fever, New York nightlife legends of the 70s, 80s, 90s, and beyond. I am joined by my co-host, the co-founder of World of Wonder, Fenton Bailey. Hello. Hi, how are you doing, James? I'm good. I'm good. We are missing Randy Barbado, our other co-host who is out on secret assignment. Mm-hmm. Um, our guest today, I'm very excited. He is an artist, uh, an author, a club historian, and for 21 months from 1978 to 1981. Was it 81? Early 79 till the end of 1980. Okay, he was the doorman at the legendary punk rock, post-punk, new wave, no wave, art space, performance space and nightclub, the Mud Club on 77 White Street in Tribeca in New York. Welcome to the show, Richard Bach. Thank you. Thanks so much. I'm flattered that you asked me to be part of it. Well, you know, so much of uh, conversation about nightlife in the 1970s is Studio 54. And this, your book right here, The Mud Club, is an exhaustive and fascinating look at the other legend of the time. And it's very much like the Warhol Diaries, Fenton, that if you, you can read it from start to finish, and I think you should, but you can also just open up to any page and there is something scandalous and shocking and just uh, just absolutely jaw-dropping for you to read. Um, well, that's what I've been doing. And and I just have to say, I didn't go to the Mud Club that often, but oh. it was right round the corner from where I moved when I first went to New York. I arrived in New York. I'm so glad you weren't there, Richard, when I moved to New York in 1981, because you would have been the guy who turned me away at the door. <laughs> so that's good that you're not that guy. Um, yeah, I was on Crosby Street, 56 Crosby, uh-huh. between Spring and Broom. So that was actually very near the Mud Club. Fenton, I had no idea that you fenced the Mud Club. I had no, I didn't know yes, I had this. Yes, like literally twice. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it was amazing. And the, I have the weirdest memory, and then I'll, I promise I'll shut up. But I heard this song by a band called Planet Fred from Jupiter, and I've never heard it ever since, but it is still in my brain. <laughs> and it's really like Madonna's music, that single music. But this was obviously... Many years before, and I'm just, I'm hoping one day I will find this song. That's funny. Well, Richard, you're, there's so many specific memories in the book. I, I have to ask, did you have diaries? Did you have journals? Because your memory for clothes and specific conversations is just spot on. How did you do it? Well, I did keep some journals and I did refer to them. I had a lot of things in an archive, even some clothes from those days. And I also interviewed about just under 200 people for this book. And the way, what happens when you interview that many people is someone will say something and you'll respond like, oh, I never would have remembered that. And then you start riffing back and forth on what they said and you may say something and it may jar something in their memory. So a lot of details came up in that way, w- meaning in my mind that I never would have remembered if they had not been poked and prodded out of me by doing all these interviews. 
Well, did you find as you were interviewing people about a specific night or specific incident that there was a Rashomon effect and that everybody had different memories of something that happened? Some, <laughs> well, yes. Um, <laughs> and of course, some people, some people like to inject themselves into a story more than they were actually part of it, or if they were even part of it at all. <laughs> and, you know, you just sort of, but interesting things will come out of their telling of it. So I'm not ready. To, I, I, I wouldn't put the brakes on anybody and say, wait a minute. I would just let them talk and I would either record or take notes or both. <laughs> and sometimes people would even ask me, was that the night when such and such was there or when this happened? And I'll say, no, it was another night. And they may question me and I may question them. But we got to the, you know, the truth, as it were, you know, one way or another. And in that, many of those details came up. You know, history belongs to the writers. So you have the last say on this, whether or not it happened the way you say or it did happen the way you say. I was pretty good. You know, I did a lot of readings when this book came out. And I even did one at Book Soup in L.A., Mm. they all had good crowds. They were all well attended. Never once did someone raise their hand during the Q&A afterwards and say, you know, (laughs) I don't remember that happening or I don't remember you doing that. I mean, no one called me on anything. Granted, everybody's memory goes through a slight deterioration, even if it's still clear in their mind. I spent five years writing the book, so I was really kind of meticulous as far as double and triple checking things before Mm -hmm. I would say things or before I'd really put it down. Before we get to the Mud Club, because we're going to spend a lot of time there, um, you arrived in New York. You you grew up in Long Island? I did. Yeah. What year did you come to New York? I came to New York in 1976. Uh, let's sort of just sort of set the table here. In 1976, New York, rents are cheap, buildings are crumbling, our, the art scene is coming up. What? what t- tell me what it is that you saw when you came to town and what, what brought you there. Well, what brought me there was I was supposed to be doing my graduate work in uh, printmaking and painting at NYU. I had been accepted for, accepted for their program. And I got an apartment on Bleecker Street. Yes, the rents were cheap. I got a one-bedroom apartment on Bleecker Street, sort of diagonally across from where the village gate used to be. Uh, That was Mm -hmm. at Bleecker and Thompson. I was at Bleecker and Sullivan on the other side of the street. And um, in walking distance to to Washington Square Park, the NYU campus, as you know what it was then, um, less sprawling than today. And... I got immediately, not slowly, but immediately sucked into the nightlife. I mean, I was at Bleecker and Sullivan. I was equidistant between CBGB's to the east, Christopher Street to the west, and Max's Kansas City to the north. Uh, Maybe Max's was a little bit more of a walk at that point. And everything was happening. That was sort of the Those were the places that I went to. I had been coming into the city to go to shows at CBGB's to see television and Talking Heads and Ramones and Patti Smith. And I had gone to Max's a bunch of times. But 
from when I got into that apartment on Bleecker Street, I was out every single night. I never went to a single class at NYU. I, never, <laughs> I registered. I put together a program. I sat with an advisor. And that was the last time I ever set foot on the NYU <laughs> campus until I got until they gave me library privileges in 2012 to do more research about New York City at the time for this book. <laughs> so 30 some years later, you finally made it I onto campus. Made it, yes, I made it onto campus. Your first job was at a club called or a bar called the Ballroom in the West Village where you bartended. It was on West Broadway. It was on West Broadway. Between Halston and Prince. All the names that are dropped in the book. I think my favorite is that Ethel Merman used to come to this bar, that you would see Ethel Merman at a bar. You've got to just, I, I can't believe I'm two degrees of separation from someone who saw <laughs> Ethel Merman. Just tell me about Ethel. <laughs> well, I have, let me just tell you what the ballroom was really like. It was a bar and people did get drunk there, but it also was a, <laughs> it was a, believe it or not, a three-star New York Times restaurant at the time. And it was a nightclub. It was sort of Soho's version of Reno Sweeney, which was on okay. West 13th Street. So we had a lot of the same acts. Like Joe Papp did his a two-week nightclub run at the ballroom. Estelle Parsons did a run at the ballroom. Uh, it was a cabaret. Okay. Two shows a night. So, so this isn't the mine shaft or the anvil or something. No, this is no, 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 no. Okay. And, and Ethel Mer, because a lot of Broadway people would do their nightclub act there with Charles Strauss, the composer. He did a review there, people like that. So people like, you know, Ethel Merman would show up in, you know, on a given night. And was she was she like a truck driver? Did she drink? Was she was she loud? Oh yeah, she drank. Good. Good. <laughs> she was loud. But you know, <laughs> that the 70s, I mean, this is now we're in the mid, still in the mid-70s. That was my first job. Um, so we're talking about. And, and and anything goes kind of time. So Ethel Merman being loud or even Ethel Merman being there didn't seem like... It just seemed natural that, that Ethel would walk into the, the bar. She was supposed to be there. <laughs> and um, Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying she was a regular, that she was at the bar or at a table every night. But yes, Ethel Merman made appearances at the ballroom to see different... <laughs> shows or different reviews, whatever was happening there. That is hysterical. Okay, let's go to Finding the Mud Club. You lived around the street from it. It was Ross Blechner's building. How did you yeah. how did you discover that there was a club called the Mud Club about to open? I was working at the ballroom and, you know, like people who worked in restaurants then, and I'm sure they still do, you know, during the breaks, someone would go out and get more cocaine or get cocaine. And then we'd want to go out somewhere else afterwards. Well, first I remember seeing that the B-52s were playing there for, for the Mud Club's opening night. The, the ballroom was about eight or nine blocks north of the um, White Street. And I lived nine blocks south of White Street on a, a block, a street called Murray Street. So, you know, depending on how drunk or how high we were, I would walk home to my loft or walk home with a few people. We discovered the Mud Club on those walks home. We were seeing 
basically we discovered going there as a regular thing on those walks home. Were you working opening night? No, 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 no. I didn't. I came four months after that. But once I set foot in that place, I didn't want to leave. And probably after the first of the year, I was going there almost every night. And, you know, CBGB's really was a place to go to see a band as Max's was. A lot of people hung out in those places, but I was no longer, I was hanging out now at the Mud Club. And as I say in the book, there were people I knew and people I wanted to know who were there. And I felt like everybody was there, that sort of everybody with quotes around it. The red hot center of the universe. What was the vibe like? Like, we live in such a virtual world of social isolation. Uh, I was just curious, like, what the feel of it was. What was really sort of interesting and sort sort of almost sexy about it was that it was sort of in the middle of nowhere in those days. I mean, it's, it was Tribeca, but people also referred to it as industrial Chinatown. I mean, you could still rent a loft if you were an artist for three, $400 a month down there, 2,000 square feet. It was, and White Street, there was no traffic down there at night, not like today. We could walk down the middle of the street and not have to worry about a car like headlights coming at us or a horn or a or God forbid, getting hit by the car. So that sort of secret thing, its location made it special. And then what also made it special was the fact that there was really nothing special about it. It was the first floor entrance of a six-story loft building on a deserted street. There weren't even cab lines at that point there. And you'd go inside and it was just painted black. There was some exposed brick. There was some sheetrock walls. It was dark gray. The ceiling, the pipes, they were all painted out like in a matte black. And, you know, the air ducts, the ventilation system. What made it special was the, and what gave it its vibe were the people who filled it up. There was a bar, like a a long oval bar with the bartenders in the middle. And the only sort of decorative element was the bar had a plexiglass top, but and between, like, I guess the plywood top and the plexiglass, there were topographic maps. And that was its only sort of design element. On the wall, there were photos by a guy named William Coupon of some of the regulars who we know, people like Howie Pyro, David Byrne, Marsha Resnick, Colette the Artist, Hal Ludeker, people like that. Their photos were on the wall, nice framed, beautiful. But that was it. Other than that, it was it was just a dance floor, a bar. Of course, there was the, the second floor, which is the VIP. Yes, there was. The second floor really um, didn't start happening right away. And then when it did start to happen, it was really just sort of for the weekend. And then they started having someone man the stairs to the second floor. We never referred to it as uh, the VIP. We re- we always referred to it just as the second floor. People would say, is the second floor open? Is the second floor open yet? Are you going to open the second floor tonight? Was there like a, a couch up there and a, a bathroom? Still? There were places to sit, yes. There were two bathrooms. There were booths. And uh, initially, from when it first opened, 
there were those old kind of student desks. Do you remember those desks we used to sit in when we were kids? They had sort of like a, you put your books under the seat and then there was a top that sort of was shaped where you could rest your arm down on one side and then the, uh-huh. the part where you'd open your book or write was in front of you. There was a bunch of those desks scattered around. There was some old beat up like thrift store couches. And this is where Iggy Pop and Sid Vicious and Mick Jagger and everybody would end up. They would sit at these little desks. Sid actually died about two weeks before the Mud Club opened. Right. Okay. Okay. I think he died on the 12th of October. As, as it went on, there was also a third floor in a basement. Yeah. The basement, I was shocked to see that Eric Good and Serge Becker designed the basement before they ever had any idea of doing area or anything. Not Eric and Serge, Eric and Sean. Okay. Eric and Sean. Okay, I'm sorry. Sean Hausman. Serge actually was, I was just talking to him um, uh, the other day and he was saying that, yeah, well, that's, Steve gave, Steve Mass, the owner of the Mud Club, gave Eric and Sean their start, really. The basement really was just a coat check and then they partitioned it off about 20 feet back from, 30 feet back from the coat check, where the storeroom was, where all the supplies were, the liquor, paper towels, all that kind of cleaning supplies. And Eric and Sean they finished that room in front of the coat check. They did a ceiling. They did a marble effect on the floor. They they treated the walls. So it became, you know, in a way, it was one of their first installations. Yeah. You mentioned Steve Mass. And the stories that I've always heard of Steve was that he was a madman, a complete lunatic, but he was a genius at the same time. Tell me about your relationship with Steve, and, and am I correct that he was a madman? What was great about Steve was he allowed so much to happen. Like if someone came to him with an idea, and remember, the drinking age back then was 18. So there would be kids who were like 16, 17. So if some crazy little teeny bopper girls you know, who he knew who from hanging out at CBGB's because he used to hang out at CBGB's. He was part of that whole contortions, James Chance, Anya Phillips entourage. And so if one of the one of these kids, Howie Pyro, um, Phoebe Fitch, any of these people, if they presented Steve with an idea, Steve would go, oh, yeah, let's do that. And was Steve a wild man? He was in a very understated way. Steve being a wild man, it was all up here. It wasn't in a physical kind of way. I can honestly say whether it was before I worked there, when I worked there, or after I worked there, or anywhere else, I've never seen Steve on a dance floor, ever. (laughs) He'd come out to the door and do things like, throw a monkey wrench or a hand grenade into the situation on a Saturday night where he would say to me, no beards tonight. Another night he might say, no leather jackets. And I'm like, what? No leather jackets? He would do things like that. He would he would come out and say, let that person in. And he'd point, he'd point at someone to me and I'd think to myself, oh my God, that's like the last person in the world I was going to let in. <laughs> But he would do that almost knowing that that would be the last person in the world I'd let in. Just to sort of stir the pot. 
Drugs were in the mix. Alcohol was in the mix. Loud music was in the mix. Kinky sex was in the mix. So all of that contributed to, did it contribute to Steve being a wild man? Did it contribute to me being a wild man? Did it contribute to the general vibe going back to what Fenton asked earlier? What was the vibe like? Yes, all of those things contributed to the vibe. I want to know about the kinky sex. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, like I said, drinking age was 18. Like I also said, we were it was the 70s still then. And even when 1980 rolled through, it was still a very anything-goes environment, especially in light of the fact that we were in a pre-AIDS situation. So, wow. I mean, certainly it might have been on someone's radar. There might have been some medical professionals who knew that something was out there. and But no one really... but. In that environment, with the the drinking age, the drugs, New York being what New York was in the 70s, sort of in this sort of beautiful state of decay, and I say that seriously, it was, it was a different kind of beauty than the high-rise glass towers that we have today and the, the manicured parks and the walkways and everything. It was a beautiful decay, and... All of those things allowed, again, for anything to happen. If you had enough drinks in you, it didn't matter if you were straight or gay or whatever you might be, if you were male or female, at the end of the night, you would go home with someone or you would wind up in the bathroom at the mud club with someone or in Cortland Alley, which ran alongside the mud club, or... (laughs) You know, uh, me, who was allowed to, had keys to get into the back of the basement with someone. Or, you know, you could, you may go home with one or two people. We even, I mean, oh God, Ross, Ross will just, Ross has to know this because I mentioned it in my book. Ross Blechner, who owned the building. I mean, when he was away, we used to go up to his loft sometimes, (laughs) two or three or four of us. Like, like, you know. Well. Have sex. But I had no idea Ross Blackner owned the building. Oh, yeah. yeah. Ross bought the building maybe one or two years before the Mud Club opened. He signed the lease with Steve Mass when they were looking for a space. He, Anya Phillips, and Diego Cortez, his co-founders in the in the Mud Club, and who really were just sort of muses to Steve. Steve's money opened up the Mud Club. And it was really Steve's club. But um, Ross rented them the space and then the second floor in the basement and eventually the third floor. And then about into the second year, Steve bought the building from Ross. Mm. And then by the end of the mud club, Steve had sold the building back to Ross. Oh, so is, is Ross still there? Ross sold the building. I think he bought it for like a few hundred thousand dollars in the early mid seventies, like on the short side of nineteen seventy five. And he sold it for about eight million 
Oh, in 2006, I think he told me. I think it's uh, in the book. I'd have to look. I'd have to look wow. at my notes or at the book. Well, I imagine with Ross, that's that's where you get Julian Schnabel and you get a lot of the other artists of the period coming. The whole Mary Boone stable would come there because Ross was part of that at the time. And and Jean, little Jean-Michel Basquiat when he was still Samo. He was there almost every night. He was another one of those, you know, kids. They were still teenagers then. Yeah. He was a sweet kid. Unlike Steve Mass, he was always on the dance floor. He was always at the DJ booth, you know, asking what they were playing. Was he or, scribbling on the walls? To yes, he, he did scribble on the on the bathroom walls. In fact, in the early days, we would we would um, we would bum rush him out the door because he was spray painting the bathrooms. <laughs> and then uh, he was always so sweet. You know, he would come back the next day with like sort of a a sad face with a little smirk attached to it. (laughs) We would let him back in. And then, you know, he really became Jean-Michel the artist probably by around 82. I mean, he was painting. He was working. He was doing small paintings, some big paintings. He was painting people's furniture wherever he was... uh, crashing for the night or the week or the month. But um, he was always at the Mud Club. Um, I want to talk very quickly about, um, just go through some of the performances that happened at the Mud Club. And I've written down some of them. The Talking Heads, of course, was a huge, huge deal when they performed. That was great. Steve filmed it. It was early in the evening, nine o'clock. It was like, it was a word of mouth situation where you just told people, called people up, say, get down here right now, Talking Heads are going to play, blah, blah, blah. And it was one of the most memorable nights, at least in my opinion. Um, Marianne Faithful, however, bombed. <laughs> this was right when Broken English came out. Oh, yeah. She was terrible. <laughs> yes, she, she left the stage after three songs. She couldn't even get words out of her mouth. Her, oh. her voice was gone. But she was on Saturday Night Live the night before, and the same thing happened. She bombed. And then the Mud Club was sort of her night to make it right, and people were outside waiting to get in as early as like 10 o'clock, 9 o'clock at night, and she went on about 1 in the morning. It was so crowded. I'd never seen the Mud Club so crowded. And despite her leaving this... The stage after she didn't show up for sound check. The band sounded amazing. The band, same band from Broken English, just about. And even though she bombed, it is probably the one of the most legendary and memorable and wonderful nights that ever occurred at the Mud Club. I mean, we <laughs> opened up a second, second floor for the after party for uh for Marianne that night. People love, I just, they, they have such a soft spot for her. They love her, whether she, you know, sort of like a, a maybe a Nico situation or something where she's just always, always off, but you just, you love her nonetheless. God, what a, she was, she was absolutely amazing. You were not a fan of the Go-Go's when they performed. At that time I wasn't. I've softened to the Go-Go's over the years. 
And I actually follow Belinda on Instagram and I get a kick out of her Instagram. I mean, she's like a rich Beverly Hills girl now (laughs) with the Go-Go's. But despite all that, I like Belinda these days. But they were awful when they came to the Mud Club. Not as far as, not musically, but they just were not nice girls. They (laughs) They just weren't, you know. I love that they were mean girls. That's hysterical. They were mean girls. And I, I wasn't I wasn't really amused, you know. But <laughs> then, like two years later, I remember one night, Belinda, Kathy Valentine, me, Smutty Smith, and Levi Dexter, we left the Peppermint Lounge and we got in a cab and we went down to the Blues Brothers bar on Varick or Hudson Street, wherever the hell it was. Right above Canal Street, they had that hole-in-the-wall bar for a while, uh, Belushi and John and Dan. And there was no ice. The place was closed. They had a set up, a back, a back line and some drums set up. So, And those guys started playing music, and we had such a good time that night. But the night the Go-Go's came to the Mud Club, I don't even think they had a record deal at the time. I think they might have had a single out. And they, they were they were a rougher sound in the beginning. There was yeah. they were more punk. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody who came to the Mud Club to play came to the Mud Club to play because they wanted to play at the Mud Club. They didn't want to leave New York without playing at the Mud Club. And I didn't get that vibe from the Go-Go's at that time. They may feel differently about it. They may have a whole different story about how they were at the Mud Club. I love that. I love that. I think it might have been West Coast attitude or something because Some, yeah, with, LA comes to New York to conquer New York. The building model of wonder is in today is where the Mask Club was, and I, the mask, I don't know yeah. if you ever went there, but that was kind of mud club like, wasn't it, James? Yeah, I mean, it was this it, sort it, of basement, dirty. I can see you saying that, yes. But then yeah. again, I loved John and Xine. I loved DJ Bonebreak. X was X was one of my favorite bands, and when they played the Mud Club in June of 1980, I thought this is one of the greatest bands I've ever heard. And at that moment in time, I believe they actually were. Um, some of the others that you, uh, you know, the Psychedelic Furs, yes. did one of some of their first stu- performances there. Uh, Philip Glass. Philip Glass, uh, yeah. Philip Glass performed there. And uh, Philip Glass was someone who would also come there. And a lot of his friends, like Dickie Landry, who was his sax player, was at the Mud Club all the time. Dickie played famously played sax on in Einstein on the Beach. Mm-hmm. Rebecca Christensen, who was married to Donnie Christensen, then who was in the Ray Beats and in the Contortions prior to the Ray Beats, they would often come there. Uh, and Rebecca is still one of Phil's closest associates today. William Ness Burroughs and was Ginsburg, um, and like was it Taylor Mead? Alan never did a reading there, but. William Burroughs did a reading at the Mud Club and Ginsburg and Peter Orlovsky, his his boyfriend, were there to see that. Mm. And Alan had come to the Mud Club several other times, as did Gregory Corso, one of the other beats. Yeah, William, that was a big deal. I can imagine. Having William read at the Mud Club. That was another one that was probably early in the night. It was like before the club opened type thing. Essentially, yes. It was probably yeah. at nine or 10 o'clock uh, event. 
And then the DJs would start at like 11 or 12 or whenever he finished. Were the kids respectful of William S. Burroughs? Was, did he go over well? Sure. He had also been, he had been, I was going to say playing out like he's a band. He had been playing out at CBGB's, <laughs> some, uh, doing shows uh, at CBGB's also, doing readings. Yeah, I think people were, I think, you know, today, sadly, you'll say to a young person, William Burroughs, and they don't even know who the fuck it is. Yeah. But back then, William Burroughs was still like, you know, a 19 or 20 or 25 year old or a 15 year old. If they were cool, they were cool. They knew who William Burroughs was. Right, right. Someone that we've talked about a hundred times on this show, Anita Sarko, yeah. um, is the, her origin story is the Mud Club. She uh, was born in Detroit and then was at a college radio in Atlanta, I think. Atlanta, yes. Yeah, and then she came to the Mud Club. And how did she get her job? And then just sort of let's talk a little bit about Anita's style of DJing because it, it needs to be <laughs> talked about. Anita and I were very close friends at the Mud Club to the point where when I would sort of get out of hand as far as my behavior or my drug or alcohol consumption, she would, as Anita liked to do, would get in my face and wag a finger right in my face. She did it to me many times, yes. So she came to the Mud Club with another woman, they moved here from Atlanta together, a woman named Lynn, Lynn Robinson. Lynn tells a sort of version of the story as we discussed earlier, but I remember them coming to the Mud Club. I remember letting them in. I mean, they were two single women. I mean, they they were not the kind of person who'd come to the door when it would be crowded that you would avoid. You know, they had a hip look about them. Anita claims that she, when I interviewed her, she claimed that she would bring cassettes and drop them off for Steve, but allegedly they never really made it to him. So I don't really know who she dropped them off with. It wasn't with me. Steve had a very passive aggressive manner about him in the sense that the way he'd hire people, the way he'd deal with employees. And I'm not saying that as a as a, as a dig, I'm just saying that's just the way he was. You know, you got used to it. It was part of Steve being Steve. And um, one night, somehow he managed to connect with Anita and he gave her a shot. And basically, it was trial by fire. He threw her. He threw her into the DJ booth. Said, "You're gonna you're gonna DJ for half the night tomorrow night." And I think it was a Saturday night. David Azark was the other DJ, the original DJ at the Mud Club. Um, there were other early DJs like Howie Pyro and people like that. But David's always considered the original DJ. Now, Anita, she realized, or that night she came to the realization that Steve wasn't even there to hear her or listen to her or observe her style or her sound. And when she asked him about it, he just told her she was hired and he started giving her the nights that David wasn't spinning. And Anita's style was beyond eclectic. 
She had a totally different style than David Azark. David Azark was very straight away. You know, he was he was a great DJ. The dance floor, as I say, loved David Azark. He could get that dance floor going like like nobody's business. No one could stop it like Anita. No one could clear a dance floor. Yes, it was, David was like Roxy Music, Ramones, Rolling Stones, Pretenders, James Brown, a lot of Motown, a lot of punk. Where Anita was really all over the map. I mean, Anita, Anita was the kind of DJ where you would go up to her after you just finished dancing like crazy to something she played, and you'd go up to her and say, "What was that?" And she would hold up the record proudly and show you what it was. And it might be something you had never, not only not, not heard of the song, but not even heard of the band she had played. Well, I remember at the Palladium that it would be, she would play like 20 minutes of bird noises. And then there'd be like some Bach. And then there'd be like a, a speech from like Martin Luther King. And then there would be like James Brown. And you just, you never knew what you were going to get with Anita. And she was very proud of the fact that she could drive people yes. off a dance floor. Right. You know, a lot of the the kids, the kids, a lot of them, <laughs> like the, the Jean-Michel crowd, they all loved Anita because she always she gave them that sort of an education in what uh-huh. could be considered a DJ, really. Anti-Anita. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, um, I mean, Michael Holman, who was Jean's one of Jean's best friends, he tells that same story. They they would love it when Anita was playing. Anita also mentored a very young Johnny Dinell. Yes. That's how where he got his start. He got his start at the Mud Club also. He basically took DJ lessons from Anita. You mm-hmm. know, he he borrowed a case of vinyl records from Edit Diak, who he was living with at the time on Wooster oh, yeah. Street. Sure. And that's when the Mud Club really started to get intense and incredibly busy. So we're talking now, we're probably January 1980. I think what really happened was we also had another DJ who started earlier than that in 79, a guy named Justin Strauss, who went on to be the DJ, the DJ of record at the Ritz when the Ritz opened. Mm-hmm. Jerry, Jerry Brandt sort of poached him from the Mud Club. So at at that point, we had David Azark, Anita, Justin, because Justin left the Ritz opened in May of 1980. So we still had Justin. Johnny came on in January of 80. Chi-Chi was already working at the Mud Club. Well, this is this is the love story, the origin of their of their love story. Yes, because she yes. was doing the ropes up to the second floor, yeah. uh, as was Debbie Mazer. Right, uh, little Debbie Mazar, who would have been like 16, 17 years old. Yeah. So, so wait, 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 we just have to reiterate that, that. that We're getting ahead of ourselves. That little 17-year-old Debbie Mazar was the rope person going up to the second floor. And yes. she must have been just a, a knockout then, too. Just a, She was horrible. She was yeah. 15, not 17. She was 15. No! <laughs> That is so brilliant. I love that. And we used to call her Little Deb. <laughs> like, the, like the snacks. And she used to wear like a pork pie hat and like a like a shark skin man suit. And she was adorable. 
So uh, Johnny was living with Edit Diak, the um, the art critic, an art critic, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Then that's when they would meet. They met Chichi at the club. Chichi was still dancing in Midtown, I think, at the time when she started working at the Mud Club. You mean like in Times Square? She was a dancer. Am I not supposed to say that? No, 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 no. I I, I love this. We have to get Chichi on and Chichi and Johnny on anyway. So she doesn't go there very much to that part of her story. But I mean, she used to come back to Murray Street with me and my roommate Gary a lot after work. So we got to we all got to know each other really well. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, Chi Chi was working in Midtown. Okay, okay, probably. And I know that we're just sort of listing off people right now. But the one that I just the most glamorous person in all of downtown history was your roommate, Terry. Terry Toy. Yeah. Terry was really fascinating. Terry just came home with us for a place to crash after a night at the Mud Club. And the next day she went somewhere to get her hefty bag full of designer clothes and her suitcase Uh and came back to Murray Street that afternoon. And she didn't leave for about, I don't know, six, six, seven, eight months. How old is she when she arrives in at the Mud Club? She's got to just be a, a child. She was probably in her late teens. So I'll I'll venture to say she was 19. If she wow. turned, she might have turned 20 at the Mud Club, at meaning during my run at the Mud Club in those two years, those just short of two years. But um She was she was gorgeous and fabulous, and she was fully Terry Toy, I imagine, at 19. Terry looked like a beautiful girl, whether she was coming to the mud club in a in a in a Valentino dress or whether she was in khakis and a white t-shirt and Chuck Taylors, you know, she was still beautiful. You know, those who knew, knew, but say like the bridge and tunnel boys, those as, as (laughs) Rudolph liked to call them sexy bridge and tunnel. (laughs) He was such a pervert. And uh, (laughs) we would, I, I, but I agreed with him. I mean, some of the cutest boys and girls would come in from Long Island, uh, you know, back in the day when there was still such a thing as Bridge and Tunnel. And, oh. um, but those guys, you know, they would think Terry Toy was a girl, Terry sure. Toy, because she really was. Oh, I remember because I did Doris for years and years in New York as well. And those those Bridge and Tunnel boys would just, they would wreck me. Those were the boys by five o'clock in the morning on the second floor of the mud club that were easiest to go home with. Yes, always. <laughs> Terry was a great friend. She was a probably one of the most fun roommates I ever had. We got in a lot of trouble together. We were partners in crime. There's a, a number of times in the book where I think Victor Hugo had thrown, was doing a play at the Mud Club. Did, yes. And uh, that was the time that um, Halston and Steve Rubell and Roy Cohn came. Yeah. Yes. And she was in the play, right? She was. Yes. And she every time she was on stage, she just stole it from Jackie Curtis and Taylor Mead and whoever else was in the play. Oh, yeah. She was a scene stealer. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that that went without saying. Because did you ever go up to Studio 54? I did. I wasn't, a, I wasn't a regular there, but I had gone there prior to working at the Mud Club a few times. And when I say a few... I mean, less than a handful of times. So that place opened in April 77. So it opened about six, 
months before the Mud Club opened. Uh, oh no, it opened a year. It opened eighteen months before the Mud Club opened. The Mud Club opened in, in October '78. So I had gone there maybe a, a half a dozen times. And mm-hmm. when the Mud Club opened, you know, a guy named Michael Overington, who was the manager of Studio Fifty Four, he used to come down to mud a lot when he would be able to leave because he wasn't he wasn't like the night manager or the floor manager there he was like the manager so he would come down and he would always give me like drink tickets or tell me if there was going to be some kind of event and say you know you got to come he was always very nice to me and Steve Rubel and Steve had come with uh, Mark Benneke Oh, right. The doorman. Yeah. And they both told me whenever I, whenever I wanted to come to just come up there. And I took advantage of that a couple times, but I never really, you know, unless there was like one night James Brown played there. I went for that, you know, maybe Lena Lovitch actually played at Studio 54. I went to that. But, you know, basically I stayed downtown. Drugs (laughs) Drugs <laughs> is uh, something here because, uh, like I said, I I know the doing the door and the the cocaine that just gets thrown at you. Just ev- every other person is throwing it at you, and you're drinking and you can do coke, but you were doing a lot of quaaludes as well, which is floors me. Because how do you do a door on quaaludes? How does that even work? Um. <laughs> Well, first of all, people would give me quaaludes. Yes. And I would I wouldn't I would mostly bite a quaalude in half and put the other <laughs> half in my pocket. Here was what the trajectory really was. I was I wound up doing what people were really giving me was cocaine. Yeah. And people were giving it to me, asking me, could I come inside? Could we go down to the basement, meet meet them in the bathroom? Could we do this? Could I come to their car? They drive her. I'd leave the door. We'd drive around the block, do cocaine in their car. I'd come back out of the car, go back to the door. You know, we had some security people there. So I was always able to do do insane, inappropriate things like that. And uh, I wound up doing probably mid by by summer of 79. I was probably doing so much cocaine that neither the alcohol, certainly not the alcohol, not even the quaaludes was able to take the edge off it. Wow. And that's when I wound up... James is impressed. Yeah. <laughs> that's when I wound up, you know, doing doing heroin. Sure. That's when I wound up starting to do speedballs. I even say in my book, yeah. when I say that word even right now, I, it's like... I even say in the book, is speedball even a real word? I mean, like, (laughs) you know, like speedball. It's like, (laughs) you know, like, I know what it is. We all know what it is. You know, it's, but. If there's one person in this world you do not have to worry about telling these stories to, it's me. Because I think, I I know all, I I was doing speedballs at the door too. I know all of this. Right. But. But the only times I ever did quaaludes, though, I don't remember. I did them once or twice. And I guess that means that it worked because that's most people's uh, experience. But also, I remember you saying that you were t- sitting with Anita Pallenberg one time and you were doing a low-dose quaalude 
a low dose lewd. Did they come in different strength? No, they didn't. <laughs> I think I was just saying that sort of as ironically that maybe it was a maybe it was a bootleg. Maybe it wasn't a roar. <laughs> okay, it wasn't a good one. <laughs> maybe it wasn't a roar, or it was a lem- It was a lemon. Remember, there used to be ones that were called lemons, and then there <laughs> ones there were the, the roarers. R o r e r. I think they were Roar 714s. They were the real ones, the uh-huh. ones that were available prescription-wise in those days. And then the bootlegs were called lemons. Now, they weren't just called that. Of course, they were lemons, like a lemon car. They were called that because that's what they were called. I have to say I have Quaalude envy because I've never done a Quaalude. And it's not possible to do a Quaalude anymore, is it? No, it's not. No, I think not. every once in a while you'll hear a story on Twitter about like some old hippie dies and they find in the freezer a bunch of like 60s acid and 70s quaaludes. But it's very, very rare. I want to talk a, a little bit about some other people that uh, I'd always heard about, but I've never I don't know about. And the most glamorous of those is Tina Lahotsky, who was the queen of the mud club. And how was she crowned? How, what was her allure? Tell me about Tina, because I've always heard stories about this woman who was the queen of the mud club. She was sort of like a Jane Mansfield type, except okay. she was she was brilliant. I mean, she was a filmmaker. She was a big, full-figured, beautiful blonde. A Diane Brill type. A Diane Brill type, yes. Okay. She was a Diane Brill type. Or Diane Brill was sort of a more a more glamazon version of the Tina Lahotsky. Tina Lahotsky was very East Village in the days when the East Village really was the East Village. I mean, Tina Lahotsky, you know, was rough around the edges, but still gorgeous. She was the self-proclaimed queen of the mud club, but there was no ah. denying that she was an, a very important part of the equation there. But she had Steve's ear. That was what, that Mm. was the most important thing. Steve adored her. Um, Steve respected her. Steve listened to her. So I always got along with Tina. I mean, I, Tina was helpful to me. Tina was great to know. But if Tina didn't like you and you had anything to do with the Mud Club, that could have been a problem there. She was not vindictive, though. She was a sweetheart. She had that power if she wanted to. She had that power if she wanted it. So um, she did this somewhere. She she sautés a Barbie doll in a frying pan on the stove. (laughs) And um, I think it's just called Barbie. (laughs) That's the movie. She lived on East 3rd Street by the men's shelter um, between, Uh what is that, between 1st and 2nd Avenues? Or between 2nd and 3rd, I forget. And... That I mean, that was referred to as Little Hollywood. I mean, Eric Mitchell lived there. John Lurie lived on that block. I think Howie Montag was there, too, because I lived on 4th and Bowery right there for a long time. Right. The men's shelter was right around the corner and they stole my car a number of times. (gasps) I remember um, in like 2013 or whatever, hearing that Tina Lahotsky was living in California and she was working on her memoirs called Queen of the Mud uh, right before she died. And right. I remember saying to Stephen all the time, we've got to find Tina and do an interview with her. Or something. I would love to find this book and see her memories of the mud. Yeah. 
a lot of that history that sadly has been lost. It's a, yeah. It was a very poorly documented mm. period. I mean, it was pre-internet. It was pre-tech. So there was way pre-internet. It was like 20 years almost, pre-15 years pre-internet. Um, so, I mean, I think that's what took me so long to write my book. Yes. I mean, you're a real historian. And the, yeah. these histories and these stories, unless they get told, they... But, you know, and setting up the timeline was difficult also, because in those days, if you ever notice, now maybe you'll notice because I'm mentioning it, but if you ever look at flyers, club flyers from the 70s, whether never have the year on them. They never have the year. Yes. What yes. is that? How could they have been so stupid? <laughs> it's like they never have the right. year. Well, it's because I, I kept diaries at the time and I never put the year on the diaries ever. So I have like five diaries that are like September of, you know, and you like, you have to really do context clues as to what the hell year it was. That was the challenge. And there were many times where I'd have a section and then all of a sudden I'd go, oh shit. And I'd have to cut and paste that section from page 200 and take it all the way back to page 150 because it didn't belong where we were. It just didn't. And that happened a few times. I wanted to know what the end of the mud club was. You know? Well, by the end of the mud club, I was working as the dining room manager at one university place, Mickey Ruskin's last restaurant. Mickey Ruskin was uh, Max's Kansas, the original Max's Kansas City. The founder of Max's Kansas City in 1965. Yeah. And then in 75, when he sold Max's, he opened the Lower Manhattan Ocean Club on Chamber Street, way ahead of his time opening something up in Tribeca in 1975. But basically, the next was 1U, and that opened, in, so that opened a few months, two months before the Mud Club opened. I had never heard of One University Place until you talked about it so much in the book. Oh, yeah. It was, it was, and it sounds like it was a real meeting place for people, like before the clubs, maybe. Yeah, everybody went there. And all the, all the old artists, the, the, the pop artists, the abstract expressionists, all of those people, the color field painters, they all hung out there, whether it be uh, Lichtenstein or Larry Rivers or... Uh, John Chamberlain, Robert Rauschenberg, all of those people hung out. David Bowie, Abby Hoffman, every, every, they all hung out. The Clash, uh, Jean-Michel, Mary Boone's stable of artists, everybody hung out at 1U. And it's interesting because you talk about how things that are not documented, that sounds like it's a documentary or a book or something that needs to happen too, or all of Mickey's places. I've, you thought, know? Of, I've thought of that. His... His uh, his partner and the mother of two of his kids, Yvonne, she's been trying to get something off the ground, a film, but I don't know what why that has it's been or or what footage would even exist probably of something yeah. like that. I mean, yeah, I've thought about trying to do something about one university place because it is it is it's not poorly documented; it is undocumented. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, I'd never even and I. I pretty much pride myself on knowing all the clubs that, that have happened, but I never heard of, heard of that. It was interesting what you had to say about Club 57, because we've talked about Club 57 a lot, and it was sort of going on at the same time, but you were also, 
I think Kenny Scharf was the one who said that 57 was groovy, but Mud Club was cool. Yes, that's a great quote. Yes, mm. and you sort of went along with that. I loved it. The minute I came to his mouth, I was like, this is, this is a quote. I think, not to take anything away from Club 57, I mean, it was like the Mud Club in the sense that it was sort of this Petri dish, this incubator for a lot of talent. I thought the Mud Club, in my mind, was more of a <laughs> serious endeavor, so to speak. It was maybe artier, whereas... There was a little more gr- gravitas to the Mud Club. Okay. In that we had William Burroughs there. We had Kenneth Anger do a film presentation there. We had serious people. Mm-hmm. We had artists that I studied when I was in school. We had Joseph Boyce come there. We had, um, you know, Robert Rauschenberg coming there. We had Brian Eno with Steve Mass's roommate at the time the Mud Club opened. Club 57 was rooted in a more childlike, and I say that in in a childlike sort of innocence, in a childlike sort of fun aspect where the Mud Club had a heavier vibe. It just did. And that was a vibe that I was attracted to. Right. I wasn't attracted to, you know, party dresses and jumping up and down and big hair and... <laughs> the, the sort of 50s vibe, the, the, the retro 50s thing that was happening. Something, I was attracted to something a little darker. Uh-huh. And uh, and again, I, I, that is no reflection on what, what Club 57 was in the sense, like I said, the Mud Club. It was an incubator for some great talent as was the Mud Club. After the Mud Club, um, I know you worked at the Peppermint Lounge for a little bit when Rudolph and Jim Ferrat were doing it. I did. They, they only lasted about a month. Oh. Um, I worked with them. Jim brought me on there. The Peppermint Lounge at that point was basically a, a, a money laundering place for the Midtown mob, for Maddie the Horse, Ionello, and all of Midtown Vice. I mean, that's what it was when it was the Gigi Barnum room prior to right. that. The Gilded Grape. The Gilded Grape, all of those places. So, yeah. and that's who basically was running the joint then. I mean, there was some great music that came through the Peppermint Lounge when I was there. And I only lasted six months. They fired me. After six months, because they said I was <laughs> out of control. And, um, <laughs> but, you know, I guess looking back in retrospect, I see that as a great compliment because <laughs> part of my being out of control during that period of time is part of my legacy. I mean, <laughs> being out of control, going down to hear a few songs from The Clash every night when they were playing at Bond's Casino for that two week run. Yeah, if that was out of control, I wouldn't change a thing. Uh-huh. Were you around at all for the area Palladium uh, Tunnel Limelight era of the 80s? Yes, I was. You were, uh, okay. I remained friends with Eric, Eric Good, from mm-hmm. his stint at the uh, Mud Club. And they used to, hey, he and Sean had a loft on Walker Street right around the corner from the Mud Club. So they were always at Mud in those early days, pre area. Area opened about six months after Mud closed in September 83, I believe. So Eric was always kind to me when I went there. 
And Howie was always kind to me when I went there. And Tunnel, who is it, Tunnel? Jorge was always kind to me when I went there. Or Steve Lewis would, would have always taken care of you. Steve Lewis, Steve Lewis. Right, right, right. Yeah, I went to those places, but I was sort of, I wasn't in the best of shape, really. I was kind of, I was no longer really hireable on to be a door person. Mm-hmm. It, I had a, I, I really had to take some time to get my shit together. And, but I still was going out and dancing and staying out till five in the morning and somehow managing to get home. But I wasn't, I wasn't in the employee of any of those clubs at that time. And I, I certainly wouldn't have been able to. One of the last questions here is Fenton would probably want me to ask, would the club kids have gotten into the mud club? The club kids, you mean the limelight club kids, basically your, your crowd, James? Sure. Yes. Or would we have been at Club 57 or Studio 54? I think all of that depends at how many of you showed up at once (laughs) and at what hour of the evening and at what condition you were all in at the time (laughs) you showed up. Because I had this rule of thumb that I would like to keep difficult patrons outside rather than have them get in and then have to remove them. So we would be stuck outside is what you're saying. That We would be out there causing problems. So I would say some of you would definitely have gotten in. Others may not have gotten in. And that's as diplomatic as you can you can be. I tried to be diplomatic there. (laughs) I see you on the sidewalk, James. (laughs) No, I have a feeling that if I had been in 1978 in New York, I would have adjusted myself accordingly. I would not be in a tutu in Tierra. I would probably would have been in a skinny tie and stovepipe pants. That's it, right? The the, the aesthetic change. Yes, the aesthetic change. That's exactly correct. That is spot on, as you would say. Do you think that um, that the Mud Club was a reflection of the times, or did the Mud Club was it a catalyst? Was it was it changing the times? Mm-hmm. I think it was a little of both. I think it was yeah. a reflection. I think it's bare bones sort of aesthetic and its dark kind of vibe, and its location in the middle of nowhere downtown was a reflection of the times and what New York City allowed. And I think it moved things forward because undeniably, um, I think area was, you know, we did theme parties that lasted for a night or the installations would stay up Mm. for a few days or something. The rock and roll uh, funeral and Mother's Day with Joan Crawford and Combat Love, the war party, all of those things. The hippie, the retro hippie thing, yeah. The hippie party. And that probably is what gave Eric, you know, sort of fed into what what the club scene turned into. I think Eric paved his own way and and came up with a lot of really brilliant ideas for what they did over at Area or together that whole team did. Mm-hmm. But I think undeniably, even if it was in a subconscious kind of way, that the Mud Club definitely influenced everybody mm-hmm. who went through those doors, who had anything to do with nightlife moving forward. 
I, you know, it has been such a pleasure to meet you and talk to you because I think everything you say is completely true. And that the way the Mud Club and New York City clubs generally at that time moved popular culture forward is hugely significant yeah. and kind of untold. And I can see this connection now between area, like, because area was that sort of 80s gloss, you know, yeah. when the commodification came in. But all of it came out of a very punk, do-it-yourself aesthetic, that an artistic creativity that the Mud Club championed and was a, was a platform for. Absolutely. I mean, I, I totally agree with what you just said. It was that, that bridge between the punk and new wave and into the, you know, 80s music and everything. Like, it, every, it just sort of feels like the bridge between the 70s and the 80s. And the Mud Club also pioneered a lot of the early hip-hop stuff and rap stuff. I mean... Mm. Uh, Fat by Freddy was, was a big... Fat by Freddy was there. Um, Run DMC, Beastie Boys in an early incarnation. Before they were Beastie Boys, Ad-Rock had a, had a band called uh, Young and Useless that played there with Bryce Martin's son was also in that band. And, you know, there were other things. But all of those guys were coming, starting to come down to the Mud Club. The Bronx was starting to come down to the Mud Club. And that's sort of what saved the Mud Club in its last year or so. Was that it, it made that pivot. It, it, it did that pivot towards hip hop and early hip hop. Richard, I haven't, I have to say, I haven't read your book, I, but I am that I've got it now and um, I will be reading it. So thank you for indulging us. And I, I hope we can have you back because yeah. I sense we just scratched the surface. I'd love to come back. I'd be honored. Thank you so much. 